You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Well, thank you, worship team. Good morning, church. You guys can be seated and you can be opening your Bibles to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 3. My name's Clint. I want to add my welcome to Mark. So glad you've joined us for worship this morning. And we're going to open up God's Word together and see what He has for us. Uh, I don't know about you guys. I had a busy, busy week. Uh, A lot going on. We had a very busy weekend. And y'all, this weekend I was tired. At least I thought I was tired until I found a news article and I read about the world's, what had to be the world's most tired individual. Uh, You may have seen this came out in the news, uh, I don't know exactly when, not very long ago, uh, but the article headline reads, Guy caught juggling two wives, three fiancés, and 15 girlfriends who didn't know each other existed. Now, this guy, he was a police chief, actually in Texas. This happened in the great state of Texas. Uh, Now, obviously, this is terrible, you know, lots of heartbreak, but that's not what I appreciated about this article. What What I appreciated about this article was the writer... He kind of paused to marvel at how this guy was able to pull this off for so long. He writes, this opening line, this is great. My palms are sweating from the stress of just reading about this guy's life, juggling 20 serious and mostly secret relationships at once. What the heck did this guy do for Valentine's Day? Go broke buying flowers? Yeah, I didn't think about that. Valentine's Day, what do you do? He goes on. This man had no chance. The population of Stennett, Texas, where he used to be police chief, is 1,400 people. How he managed to go so long without getting caught is impressive in a town where everybody knows each other. Can you imagine? A town of 1,400 people. Now you got to figure half of those are are female. That's down to 700. Probably half of those are either too old or too young. You're down to about 300 possible women, and you're dating 20 of them. And they didn't know. Can you imagine juggling that much? Well, I got to thinking about it, and you know what? I can't imagine. And I think most of us can't imagine because most of us, the truth is, we juggle lots of competing agendas, don't we? We all have all these different things in our life that are competing for our loyalty. And in fact, I think most of us have lots of things, probably even more than 20 that are vying for the throne of our hearts, don't we? You may remember we're about three chapters in, so let's review a little bit in the book of Mark and what Mark has been trying to teach us. A couple weeks ago, what we learned is that what Jesus wants most for you is to follow him. That's what he wants most for you. And so I know you want a lot of things for you. That's what Jesus wants for you, and that's actually the best thing for you. That's eternal life. Is falling. See, all these other things make a lot of promises, but they cannot follow through. So how do we do that? How do we follow him? What hoops do we got to jump through? How do we have to perform? Well, he said it's not about any of that. He says two things, repent and believe. We repent, we let go of all other agendas for your life. That's why he told his disciples, drop those nets. I know those nets are great. They're not bad, but it's just time to leave them now. It's time to follow me. And then we believe. We you may remember we talked about that means fully trust. It means you adopt his agenda for your life. And his agenda is his kingdom. And so Mark 
is painting being a follower, following Jesus, being a disciple. He's painting it like marriage. We leave and we cleave. And just like a marriage, you know, while you're married, you may have lots of other relationships going on in your life, and that's good. That's fine. But the picture is no other relationship has a higher priority than this one, and no other relationship becomes in between that one. It interferes with that one. He's, he's telling us this morning, you cannot follow Jesus and fill in the blank, even though that's what we all want to do. And so this passage this morning, there's, there's going to be some difficult verses, hard to swallow, hard to understand. But here's in the end what I think Mark is trying to tell us this morning. Jesus has no competition in the heart of a follower. Jesus has no competition in the heart of a follower. Now, before we dive into the text, we've got to understand the structure a little bit. Because Mark, he has this structure that he repeats over and over again. It's called the Markin Sandwich. And over the next few weeks, we're all going to eat a lot of Markin sandwiches together. See, Mark, he puts uh, events not in sequential order, not in the order they happen, but in sandwich order. Let me explain. So you'll get an event. That's our first piece of bread. And before we really know what to think about this event or before it even ends, he switches to the next event. And that's the middle. That's the meat of the sandwich. He gives us the whole story. Maybe there's some teaching in it. And then when that's done, he goes back the original event, and that's our final piece of bread. Now, the thing about a sandwich is it's meant to be consumed all together. You can't interpret these stories apart from each other. Now, maybe there's somebody in here who gets a sandwich and likes to pick each part separately and eat it. We have a name for you. That's called a psychopath, okay? <laughs> Normal people, the way God intended, you consume a sandwich all together, and that's what we have to do. So here's our sandwich today. And it really comes in two questions. We're going to start off asking the question, who are Jesus' people? First slice of bread. In the middle, who are Jesus' opponents? And then at the end, we're going to return to who are Jesus' people? That's the question Mark is trying to answer for us this morning. And I got to tell you, there will be surprises. So let's open up, start in verse 13. We'll read the first few verses. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they may be with him, and he may send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So remember, we're starting with a question. Who are Jesus' people? And right away we think, easy. This is an easy quiz. We get introduced to the, to the disciples. Jesus calls his first followers. A few things to notice here. He appoints them. This is not an interview. This is a summoning. We don't even hear from the disciples. They don't say anything here in Mark. And so you went up to one of them and you'd ask, hey, how did you go from being a scumbag tax collector to a disciple? And they all had the same resume and it was the shortest resume ever. One line, Jesus said I was. That's it. That's how I got to be here. And he tells them why. He tells them his purpose for their life. It's three things. He says to be with him. He calls them into a relationship with him. He doesn't throw a manual at them, say, here's your manual, go do this stuff, I'll be over here. He wants them to follow him in every aspect of their everyday life. And he calls them to preach. Now, you may remember, back in chapter 1, Jesus told him preaching is his priority for his ministry, even over and above all the miracles. Why? Because preaching is what leads to repentance and belief. 
Jesus can work all, all kinds of miracles. There's, the Bible is full of people who see miracles and they follow Jesus or follow God for maybe five minutes and that, that's about it. He is looking for followers who will repent and believe and he's telling these disciples, okay, my purpose is now your purpose. You have adopted my purpose for your life. And then a third reason why, he says to give them authority to cast out demons. Well, now we're talking. This is the one they would have been most excited about, I am convinced. They get to go around and be impressive and put on a show. It would have been amazing. Now, remember, Jesus has already been clear. Preaching is the priority over the miracles. But then we've got to ask, why this miracle? He could have said to heal diseases. He could have said right things in the sky. I mean, he could have picked anything. Why this one? Well, this is a display of delegated authority. Jesus is empowering them to do the thing nobody else can do. In fact, in a little bit, the scribes are going to be really confused because they can't do what Jesus is doing. You may remember, remember in Acts 19, the sons of Sceva, they, get, they try to go cast out a demon on their own power. They get whooped. It says they literally are sent off naked and wounded, running away. And so as these disciples go out, the only reason a demon is going to give a hoot about what they say is because Jesus sent them. They're doing it under his authority. So really, Jesus is casting out the demon. He's just doing it through them. And by doing this, wherever they go, it will authenticate these disciples as being empowered by Jesus so that people will believe their message, you see. And then, we didn't read it, but Mark lists the disciples. And it's an impressive list. It's amazing. We get the sons of thunder. Well, that sounds like a WWE tag team, doesn't it? They're going to go take over. We get Andrew. Y'all, Andrew's name means manly. Why couldn't my mama name me manly? That would have been amazing. So we get Son of Thunder. We get Mr. Manly going out. We get a zealot. No one was more passionate than the zealots. And it begins with Peter, the rock, the leader of the early church. Wow, amazing. What a group of guys he's sending out. But then look who he ends with. Verse 19, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Really? That was perfect timing, just like we practiced. What a wet blanket of disappointment. Sons of thunder, manly, zealot, the rock, Judas. And I love how Mark clarifies, in case we've forgotten, you know, the one that betrayed Jesus. Yeah, we got it, Mark. Thank you. Remember the question. What are we answering? Who are Jesus' people? Seems to be saying the disciples, but we get our first surprise. It's not even all the apostles. It's not even all 12. It's not even all 12 of the people he summoned, that he invited into a relationship, that preached the gospel, even that cast out demons. It's not even all of them. Now that's surprising. But maybe not as surprising as what comes next. Because next walks in Jesus' own family. You know, Mary and Joseph from our manger scenes. Here they come. Surely, surely, they are Jesus' people. Let's pick it up in verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Now, y'all, this is one of the most hilarious scenes in all of Scripture to me because it is relatable. Essentially, 
Jesus' family is ready to shut down the whole ministry because they, re- they find out Jesus isn't eating well enough. Mama finds out her baby ain't eating, and she's saying, everybody stop everything. We're not doing this anymore. Now, that's real life, okay? Jesus, too, had a dysfunctional family. Can I get an amen? And maybe grandma was there. You ever been to grandma's house and she finds out you haven't eaten and somehow this decrepit old lady can empty her fridge in about 30 seconds flat? This is what happens. And then they say the the language is so telling. It says they seize him. This word means to take custody of. They try to take custody of Jesus on purpose. So they're taking him into their control, and on purpose, Mark is portraying this as the opposite of the apostles. Remember the apostles? He appointed them. He summoned them. They are in his control. But Jesus' family is trying to take him in their control. And they say he's out of his mind. He's out of himself. He is crazy. His agenda is so contrary to theirs, they call him nuts. And thus ends the first piece of bread of our Mark and Sandwich. Now, here's the question. Who are his people? Who are Jesus' people? So far, how would you answer that question? Some of the disciples, but not Judas. What about his family? I mean, they mean well. You got to think they got good intentions. They're trying to take care of him, but they're also trying to gain control of him. They're trying to thwart his agenda for their own agenda for him. Well, in pure Markin style, just when we got all these questions coming up, Mark's going to change scenes. And now we get to the meat of our sandwich. Verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons, he cast out the demon. So, remember the question for this section. Who are Jesus' opponents? And right away we think, oh, this is way easier. Because right from the very beginning, we get the scribes and demons. And you think, that's it. That's got to be it. Those are his opponents, the bad guys, the scribes, and the demons. Notice a few things about the scribes. They're not following Jesus. They're not with him. They are outside, and they have to come down to him to find him. And then they say he's possessed by a demon, which is very similar on purpose to the accusation of his family. They just take it a step Further, He's not crazy. He's possessed by a demon. And they accuse him of, be, of being Beelzebub. Now, Beelzebub, he was originally, he was a god of the, a god of the Moabites. By Jesus' time, that he had come to mean the, the head of all the demons, the lead demon. And so they're accusing Jesus of being the head demon, which makes no sense. They are essentially, when, all week when I was reading this, when I thought about the scribes, all I could picture was this guy trying to figure out who Jesus was. You know who this is? From the, the Sicilian from the Princess Bride. There are two universal rules of life. Number one, never start a land war in Asia. Number two, never get in a battle of wits with a Sicilian. And he sits there and he thinks he's so smart. And he's probably a smart guy. And he's got two cups of, of uh, wine and one's poison and one's not. And he's like, oh, I got this. I'll figure this out. Obviously, you're not going to give yourself the poison, so it's got to be my cup. But you knew that I would know that, so it's got to be your cup. But you knew that I would know that, that you would know that, so it's got to be my cup. And, of course, he dies because he has no idea what he's talking about. This is essentially their working theory on Jesus, okay? He's doing some weird double bluff where he's casting out demons, 
you know, but, but he's not doing it because he's God. He's doing it because he's the head demon, and he knew if he would do that, we would know he was God, but he, he would know that we would know that, so it's silly. These are very smart people, but they have a very silly theory. And so Jesus responds with the easiest to understand parables that ever come out of Jesus' mouth, mostly because he's refuting a ridiculous theory. He really, he tells four parables. The first three are almost identical. Kingdom divided. He says, when a kingdom goes to war with itself, we call that a civil war. It does not strengthen the kingdom, it weakens the kingdom. To which we all say, duh. That makes perfect sense. That's common sense, obviously. House divided. If members of a family are at war with each other, that family will crumble. That weakens the family, not strengthens the family. To which you hear that and you say, yeah, duh obviously. Finally, Satan divided. He says, likewise, if Satan is at war against himself, Satan is being weakened, not strengthened. He is finished. This is common sense. And so then he tells a fourth parable, the parable of the strong man. And this parable is to show us, here's what is actually happening, is what Jesus is saying. Here's what's actually happening. There's a strong man, that's Satan. There's his house, that is this world. And Jesus is the guy who busts open the door, says, show's over, buddy, binds Satan, and plunders what he has taken. See, Jesus is saying, listen, when, when you see me freeing someone of their oppression, that's not me in collusion with Satan. That's me being stronger than Satan, binding him, and rescuing people from his oppression. That's what's going on. Thank you, Jesus. And just when we're ready to say Amen. Then we get some really difficult words. This is where it gets really hard. We get the verse that is known as the unpardonable sin. Verse 28. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now listen, there's been a lot written about what Jesus means here. And most of it is pretty bad theology. I would say most of it has been very damaging theology. It's led to all, all kind of mistakes, all kind of unnecessary anxiety and fear. I know that's true for me. I got to thinking, man, I, I remember being a teenager and being worried and being afraid. Did I, have I done that? Have I committed the unforgivable sin? Would I even know? If I had done that, I mean, what if, what if I can't be forgiven? And I actually remember other people trying to tell me and trying to teach me, you know, hey, you can be forgiven for anything, except whatever that means. And I was like, oh, I was afraid. And you know, I, I guess I would suspect I'm not alone. I would suspect if I asked for a show of hands of who has ever been worried that they committed this unforgivable sin, I'd probably everyone's hand in here. So let's talk about this. Let's start with what it's not, what Jesus is not saying here. First of all, this is not just any act of blasphemy. You know, you step on the Lego, you shout God, mm, sorry. All those verses about grace, forgiveness no longer apply. Or some people have argued, you notice he says, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So they'll say, you can step on the Lego, you can shout God, you can shout Jesus, but if you shout Holy Spirit, stinks for you. Sorry about that. First of all, that's not even what blasphemy is. we got to understand what blasphemy 
is. Blasphemy is exactly what the scribes are doing here. It is to attribute to God things that are not of God. It's to slap a Jesus label on things that don't come from him. And that's exactly what the, the scribes are doing here. They're saying Jesus is of the devil. Now, under that definition, to attribute to God things that are not of God, everyone is committed to sin. All of us. Every single one of us has used Jesus to try to justify something we want. You know, I really, I really think Jesus wants me to have that second slice of chocolate pie. I mean, that feels right right now. No, that's not him. And we have to understand, so if we've all done that, that is not and cannot be an unforgivable sin. And to prove that, prove that, just back up one verse, verse 28. All sins will be forgiven. Whatever blasphemies they utter will be forgiven. And we have the perfect example of that in the New Testament. Paul. Paul was just like these scribes. He was a blasphemer. He was busy killing Christians because he was so convinced that what Jesus was doing was from Satan. Yet Jesus appeared to him and redeemed him in the middle of his blasphemy. So it can't just be that. It's also not any special sin. It's like worse than all the others. And so I think sometimes when we don't know what to do with this passage, we, passage, we just insert one of the like most immoral things we can think of. So I've heard it taught that it's homosexuality. I've heard it taught that it's something like being a serial killer. I've heard it's taught any sin that if you just do it enough. And you ask, well, what's enough? Well, I don't know. But God is up there. He's got some counter. And once you hit zero on that counter, he's done with you. I've heard it's taught that it's suicide because after that, you don't have a chance to repent. And okay, that may make some logic, but that's not what it's saying. Some have even said, you know what? We don't know what it is, but if you do it, you're condemned. Well, that's terrifying. I don't even get to know what it is. So let me be clear, crystal clear. There is no action. There is no series of actions. There is no time period of actions that puts you beyond grace. That is not the testimony of Scripture. So let's look what is the testimony of Scripture. The best thing you can ever do with any passage that's difficult is let Scripture interpret Scripture. And Mark tells us, Mark repeats the context because he knew we may get confused and try to take this too far. He says, Jesus says this in response to the demon accusation from the scribes. Now understand the scribes. They're not following Jesus. They have no interest in following Jesus. They had a fixed conviction that Jesus was not God. And so all they're trying to do is catch him and kill him and do away with him. Which tells me, if you are worried about committing this sin even a little bit, you can't do it. That's not the context. The context is you are so predetermined, locked in, you have already decided that he is evil. That's the context. Now let's back up a little bit. Let's pan out and get a larger biblical context. Just in the book of Mark, remember, chapter 1, proclaiming the kingdom of God is here. It is at hand. What is our response? Repent and believe. That's our response. That's how we get into the kingdom. And y'all, it is the exact same everywhere you turn in Scripture. That is the message repeated over and over and over again. Just think of the recent books we've preached through. The book of Genesis. Abraham was never called righteous based on any good work he ever did. Abraham had faith, and that was credited to him as righteousness. The book of Ephesians, you are saved by grace through faith. The book of John, these are written so that you may believe 
and by believing you have life in his name. Over and over again, you may have noticed, none of, in none of those is there an except, unless you've over and over every book of the Bible. The offer of the gospel is always communicated as universal to all who believe. No except, no unless you've. And again, we can back up just to verse 28. All sins, all blasphemies will be forgiven. But in the context of Mark, in the context of Scripture, here's what we know he means. He means all sins, all blasphemies will be forgiven from which you repent. It's all about repent and believe. That's the consistent message throughout. And so you can think of the unforgivable sin as simply the opposite of repentance and belief. That's all it is. It is unbelief and obstinance. See, the truth is we don't need some special sin to condemn us. You know which of your sins condemns you? Any of them. All of them. They all condemn you. But they can all be forgiven through repentance and belief. That's the point of the parable. I don't care what you've done. Jesus is strong enough to bind your strong man. That's the point. And so what Jesus is talking about here, it's not what makes forgiveness impossible. It's what makes repentance impossible. It's what prevents us from accepting the forgiveness that is available to all of us. Have you ever wondered why he calls it blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I mean, is the Holy Spirit just more sensitive than the other two? He gets offended more easily? This is why. It's because the Holy Spirit has a unique role in repentance and belief. Think about it this way. Well, much of what God the Father, God the Son do is external to me. So God created everything. I wasn't there. He didn't need me for that. Jesus goes to the cross. I wasn't there. And he certainly didn't need me for that. But repentance and belief are internal works, aren't they? They're not external. That does involve me, and that is the Holy Spirit's role. And so what he's saying here is, listen, if, if the Holy Spirit convicts you, but you say, I don't need to repent, I'm a good person. You know what? That's just Satan trying to make me feel bad. Or I don't, I don't need to believe in him. I'm like these scribes. I'm smart. I'm religious. You know, that's just people trying to tell me what to do. What have you done in that moment? In that moment, you are attributing the testimony of the Holy Spirit inside you to something else, be it Satan or man-made philosophy or the tacos you ate last night, whatever it is. And that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And that is what will prevent you from repenting and believing. So you remain in your sins. You remain right where you always were. That's all he's talking about here. But that brings us back to our main question for the meat of our sandwich. Who are Jesus' opponents? The scribes, check. The demons, clearly. But is that all? Is it just the scribes and the demons? I think what Jesus is saying here is, it's anyone, anyone who doesn't repent and believe. What Jesus is doing here is he's making it totally binary. There is no middle ground. There's no, I'm following Jesus, but also... Or I'm really married to this over here and I'm kind of dating Jesus on the side. No, no, no. He's saying Jesus has no competition in the heart of a follower. That's what he's saying. 
which makes this next section, I think, the hardest words of Jesus at all. Now, if you notice, the original audience and people here, they don't seem to struggle with verse 28 and 29. I think what's coming next is what the readers of Mark would have really struggled with. So we're going back to story number one. We're going to our last piece of bread. And so back walks in Jesus's family. Verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother, your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So Mark returns to this second piece of bread and the same question. Who are Jesus's people? His family comes up and notice also about his family. Where are they? They're outside. They're apart from Jesus. They're not following Jesus, just like the scribes, just like they were described earlier. And they attempt a family intervention. I don't know about you. I've tried to do this with Jesus. Have you ever tried, tried, felt like you need to do an intervention with Jesus in your life because he's doing it wrong? I can tell you, any given point in my life, there are things that Jesus is doing that I just wish he would stop doing. And there are things he's not doing that I really wish he'd get busy doing, and I kind of think he should. But this is exactly what happens. Anytime, anytime our agenda is different than his, at some point he is not going to cooperate with us. And so we end up doing the same thing his family does. You see that? They call to him. The whole theme of Mark, we've seen it over and over and over again, is that we don't call Jesus. Jesus calls us. He calls us and we follow. He doesn't adopt our agenda. We adopt his. And so his family, they're making the same mistake the scribes are. They're also making the same mistake as Judas. This is the story of Judas. Judas essentially wanted Jesus to save his nation. Judas's agenda for Jesus was to be a political leader, but Jesus's agenda was the kingdom of God. And so, both Judas and Jesus' family are asking Jesus to follow them instead of them following him. I know that's a lot of pronouns. I hope you're tracking with me. Now, this is surprising. Yo, this is uncomfortable. Mary, Joseph, you know, from the manger scenes, the saint being lumped in with Judas. I don't remember this from vacation Bible school. That wasn't in there. See, Jesus, what he's doing here, he's making it not just binary. He is leveling the playing field when it comes to following him. He's saying when it comes to a relationship with Christ, blood is no greater advantage than religion. Both family and foe are in the same boat. And so, finally, in verse 35, we get the answer to our question. Who are Jesus' people? And the answer is shockingly simple, isn't it? We go through all this and the stories and the scribes and the demons. And Whoever does the will of God. Whoever does the will of God. What about family? What about if I'm one of the 12? What if I'm one of the most religious people anyone knows? None of that is of any value. In fact, he is saying you might as well be a demon. Ooh. Well, then we better ask, okay, what is his will? 
What is this thing we're supposed to do? It's not, you know, do I go to Mercado's or Jalapeno Tree after church? It's not paper or plastic. It's not any of this. Okay, door A or door B, which choices should I make? It's not even a list of commandments. You know, it's so easy to go straight to, okay, Ten Commandments, all the thou shalt, all the thou shalt not. I, I got to do all this stuff, and that's doing his will. But remember the context. Here we are. We're only three in the third chapter of Mark. What has Mark said so far? There have been shockingly few commands, shockingly few imperatives, and do this and do this and do this. So far in Mark, what does it look like? What does Jesus want from us? What's our response to his kingdom? Follow me, repent, believe. That's Jesus' will. It's that simple. In context, that is Jesus' will for us. So, who are Jesus' people? Those who follow him by repenting and believing. Those are his people. Those who have left their other 19 relationships and are cleaving to Jesus and his kingdom. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter if you're related to Jesus or not. So I think it's worth asking this morning, for me and for you, what in your life is competing with Jesus for loyalty? Now, I really hope, for your sake, I hope none of you are trying to date 20 people. That sounds miserable. I hope that's not you. But we all have competing agendas. We all want what Jesus wants and also what we want, right? And so we become like this guy just juggling 20 different loyalties. And maybe like Jesus' family, maybe some of these other agendas come with good intentions. You know, we need to eat. We need to take care of ourselves. And so we'll say, we'll do things like, you know, we don't need to go to church. We need to rest. We need to take a little personal time after we've made time for all the other things we want. Or we can't afford to give and be generous. We got bills to pay after we've already paid for the lifestyle that we want. And y'all, these are not hypotheticals. I have done, I've made all of those decisions, okay? These are rationalizations that make perfect sense up here. And we do them once. And then it gets easier to do again and easier to do again. And you see what's happened? We start saying no to Jesus in order to say yes to all the other things that we want. You know, I think the biggest thing for many of us, the biggest thing for me, is the same as what's in this text. Family. Man, family can be a competing agenda. Now, it's a little different. I think in biblical times, you know, their temptation was to look back. They're and, and honor and revere their fathers and their forefathers. And I wish my kids did that. But cultures have changed. Things have changed. I think really for us the temptation is looking forward. And, you know, that's when my heart sinks a little bit. Like, are you, are you telling me my heavenly family is even more important than maybe my spouse and, and, and my kids? You know, one thing that's easy to do if we're not careful is interfere with Jesus in our kids' life. You experience this temptation? Have you ever wanted to stage an intervention with Jesus for what he's doing in the life of a loved one? You know, maybe he's they're going through something painful or he's teaching them a hard lesson or it's just not fun or it's not what they want. And we want to be like, step aside, Jesus. All right. I know what needs to happen. I know how to make them happy. I, I got this. You're doing it wrong, Jesus. Never, never, never forget. For your spouse, your kids, your grandkids, God loves them more than we do. God wants better for them even than we do. And man, remember we said belief is trust. 
And sometimes for us, that means trusting Jesus means trusting him with the other people in our life, trusting him with our kids, our spouse, all of our other relationships, instead of making him compete with them in our hearts. You know, another thing it's easy for me to do is worship our kids. I think today we have to be aware of the fact that the natural current of our culture is to make idols of our kids. We got to just know that. We got to be aware that if you're, if you're just living kind of floating down the lazy river of life, letting the culture take you wherever it wants to, it will lead you to idolize your kids. Because our culture teaches that our job, our responsibility is to make sure our kids have it all and experience it all. But remember, remember what Jesus wants most for you. It's not anything and everything. It's one thing. It's to follow him. And that's what he wants for our kids too. And parents, I need to hear this. We all need to hear this. We can't expect our kids to worship God if we are worshiping them. They won't do it. We can't expect them to. See, there, there's this myth going along in our Christian culture. From We hear from a lot of parents, you know, them, my kids, they wanted to follow God. They were good in their home. And then they go off to college or they go off to the world. And that crazy evil world out there is secularizing all of our children. But y'all, all the studies and all the experience, all the biblical teaching is saying, that's not what's happening. The world, crazy world out there is not secularizing our kids. Our kids are getting secularized at home. They get secularized by our competing agendas. They get secularized when we do things like not come to church for six weeks, but never miss a baseball game. Or our houses are filled with medals and trophies and awards, and they never see us open the Bible. Our kids learn with their eyes, and it's actually a very easy conclusion for them. It's simple. We make it complicated. It's actually very simple. They see this and say, okay, primary, secondary. What we say we believe, what we actually believe. And I would ask, what other conclusion are they supposed to come to? What our kids our spouses, everyone in our life need most is to see us following Jesus with no competition in our hearts. That's the best thing you can do for your kids, your spouse, your friends, your boss, everyone in your life. But how? How do we do that? How do we grow in making sure Jesus has no competition in our hearts? Well, I'll tell you, my first reaction, the easiest reaction, is also the destructive answer is legalism. Oh, is that okay? Perfect attendance. We're never missing a Sunday. In fact, we are banning all non-church activities. We're only allowed to read the Bible and watch VeggieTales. That's all that's happening. Well, that'll never work. It's what the Pharisees tried. Jesus didn't, didn't seem to be big fans of theirs. Think of it this way. So that's the performance answer. But think of it this way. How would you correct it if it were a person? If it were a spouse, family member, a best friend that you had grown distant from? What would you do? Well, you'd probably make a point to spend time with them. You'd talk to them. That's how it works with Jesus. We, we become like him when we behold him. That's how we change. And yeah, you, you may, if it's a person, say no to other things or people that had come in between you, and you would make that relationship a priority. You may acknowledge where you were wrong. You may say, I'm sorry. You may repent. And then, yeah, if there was something they had asked you to do, you, you would be sure and you would go do it. But whatever it is, and there's a hundred answers, we have to look at it not as performing, but as repairing a relationship. 
Because remember, that's what Jesus first called the disciples to, to be with him. So ask yourself this morning, how and where do you need to repair your relationship with Jesus? Whatever it is, whatever it is, if you do that, it will be the best gift that you can give to your family or anyone in your life. And for anyone here this morning, maybe who has never begun a relationship with Jesus Christ, you don't need to repair it. You need to start it. I think what this passage is showing us is that being a Christ follower, listen, it's not something you can be born into. It doesn't come from being around church or even from being around other Christ followers. It doesn't even come from knowing the most scripture. It comes from repentance and belief. Turn away from your sins and run straight to Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and you've never believed, it's simple. I invite you today to believe. And if you do that, there's nothing that can't be forgiven. Here's why. Our theme verse, the, the main verse for the book of Mark, Mark 10, 45. I've asked all of us to memorize it and learn it and repeat it to ourselves. This is what Mark wants us to know. So let's do this. We're going to read this verse out loud together. Read it with me. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's why we follow him. This is why there's no room for competition in our hearts with Jesus. Because no other person, no other agenda we might have is God himself, is the son of man. And no other thing has given their life as a ransom for yours. So memorize it, yes. Repeat it to yourself over and over. When it feels like Jesus is doing wrong and you need to stage an intervention and you need to trust him, When it feels like other things around us are more compelling, tell this truth to your heart and follow him. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.